Good morning, everyone. Um, it's really great to be here. Happy New Year. Um, although I think the last day that we could have said that was probably about five days ago, but I'm going to do it one more time. Um, I hope you had a great Christmas. Um, mine involved a few days down on the south coast where my parents live, near Portsmouth in Hampshire. And as is tradition, we always go to midnight mass at the local Anglican church around the corner on Christmas Eve. Now, my parents' house is always full of lots of people, lots of cousins and aunties at Christmas. Sometimes we don't know who's going to um, turn up until the day before, sometimes the morning. Um, so there were a lot of us uh, going to midnight mass, about 10 of us. We'd gone in two groups, and I was in the second group that arrived at the door of the church. And as we entered and were greeted by the welcoming uh, people on the door very warmly, I was told that the rest of my party had gone to the front and would I want to sit with them. Now I paused for a moment. There are about 300 people in the church, about 10 people who are not white, um, and they were all my family. And I thought, oh, poor woman, you don't know who I am. You have no idea that what you've just said will be turned into a new story that I can use when speaking about race issues within the church and that I might note, note her down in my little black book of microaggressions. <laughs> because she'd looked at us and thought, well, since we don't have any, many black people visit the church, you must be with the other lot. Now, of course, she was right. <laughs> we were with the other group, um, but I didn't want to let her know that. I wanted to teach her a lesson in race relations. Um, so in response to her offering of sitting us with the other group of black people, my family, um, I simply said, oh, oh, which group? Oh, no, it's okay, we'll just sit at the back here. Deliberately choosing not to sit with my family to prove the point. <laughs> the point being that, one, not all black people are related. Two, <laughs> even if we were, let me take the lead and don't make assumptions. And three, don't make it so obvious when I visit your church that you don't normally have black people. This is a white church for white people. Um, now, in telling one of my friends this story recently, she did say this woman was just trying to be helpful. And of course, she was. And I know she was. We need to recognise that though well-intentioned, some of our actions might have the opposite result. Now, these types of encounters have happened many times over the years. For me, and while they might seem minor, what we call microaggressions, they convey exactly who holds the power in UK churches. Now, the story about power and the UK church is a very long one. I was yet to be a twinkle in anyone's eye when the white man came to the village of my ancestors selling salvation. Spurred by the great commission of Matthew's gospel, these Europeans made it their mission to go into all the world and preach the good news to people who looked like me. Now, while at first my people, and my people are the Igbo tribe from southeastern Nigeria, they stuck to their traditional religions they had always known. Many eventually converted to Christianity. And I'm really glad that they did. Um, I love being a Christian, I love God, um, and I'm so thankful that they did that. But because for all the faults of Western Christianity, I believe that Christianity in its essence, at its heart, is about a truth that transcends cultures, that crosses barriers, that tells the most beautiful story of hope. But my problem and what I've experienced in my three and a half decades of majority white church at local and national level in the UK is that somewhere along the way, 
this truth has been contorted into all sorts of messages that keep some people with all the power and others without. Uh, let me be honest with you, when I was invited by Nathan to do this talk on this topic, which I'm very accustomed to doing, I felt really, really tired. This sense of fatigue is being experienced by many black Britons or black people within majority spa white spaces. I'm kind of tired of talking about it because I can't believe that we still have to. Meghan Markle's story this week shows that despite being rich and beautiful and married into the world's most powerful family, power sharing, giving up space for non-white people, seems to be a tall ask. The British media, just like many British churches, have not made it easy to be a non-white person in very white spaces. It really shows that white supremacy is alive and well. And white supremacy, of course, is not just a British thing. Due to, due to our colonialist histories, many countries in the global south have also been conditioned to believe that white is right and white is powerful. That's why skin bleaching products are sold in such high quantities in some countries in Africa, for example. I had a weird experience recently, a few months ago. In the autumn, my family and I, Mark and Kia, went to Nigeria for my grandmother's funeral. And the whole family, my huge uh, Nigerian family, had gathered from all over the world for three days of funeral with a thousand people at the main event. Um, and my family decided that we would combine the celebrations with a Thanksgiving service for the birth of Kia, who was the first of our kind of that generation. And so it was that my husband and I found ourselves dancing up the aisle of a Methodist church in Umwahia. Um, complete with um, about 50 relatives, a goat, some yams, uh, wads full of cash, and accidentally baptising our son at the front, which we hadn't intended. Um, and so the Methodist minister said he felt particularly blessed because our son was the first child the new ministers had dedicated and baptised in this church. And they were even more blessed because the child was an Oyibo a white person, and that a white man, Mark McDonald, was there. And everyone whooped and cheered. Now, Mark's experience of being an ethnic minority is very, very different from mine. What they showed me was that even in those spaces, he is seen as the only per white person who was in that church being the one with the power. Now, there's a part of me that maybe might be able to understand the white supremacy that exists within mainstream Western society, and even on the geopolitical scale. But my frustration is the fact that the church so often replicates it, adopts whiteness as power without question, without giving it a second thought. And I believe the church is supposed to be better than this. Not because we're better people, but because at the crux of the Christian faith is this crazy idea that, like we read in the Ephesians passage, there is no more dividing wall of hostility. Just like the barrier broken between God and humanity, the church should actively be the ones who, who break down the dividing walls that exist between people groups. In the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, the power should be in unexpected hands. But so often it is not. 
And recent years have made me question whether the story of white supremacy being sold in many churches is really what I signed up to when I became a Christian. This present political moment, Trump, Brexit, the rise of far-right nationalism has been shocking to me and I'm sure many of us. Speaking to the New York Times about numbers of people of colour leaving white evangelical churches in the US in the wake of Trump's election, a man called Michael Emerson, who's author of a book called Divided by Faith, said, the election itself was the single most harmful event to the whole movement of reconciliation in at least the past 30 years. It's about to completely break apart. Now, in these really fragile days politically, Sometimes the Christianity I see in the public sphere has appeared so contrary to the truth that I have at times doubted whether I can still be a part of it. When Christianity becomes too closely aligned with power and privilege and protection, rather than justice and freedom for the marginalised and oppressed. In thinking about my experience as a black person within white majority church spaces, my thoughts have been punctuated by doubt. About, a doubt about whether I really have anything um, to say on the issue. I've never faced what some might describe as explicit and overt racism. I've never been called the N-word or heard it preached anywhere that black people are inferior. But, like I mentioned at the start, I have been made to feel like I don't belong. I moved from Nigeria with my parents when I was four years old um, to the UK. And so for much of my childhood, I had a Nigerian passport and not a British one. And that made going on some school trips really awful. I remember arriving on the coach um, when we went to Calais, for example, and the border police would get on the bus and then they'd take me off and I'd be hooked off to a kind of separate room for an interview. And it was humiliating and isolating and made me feel extremely other and very unwelcome and very different. I remember the first trip I had when I did have a British passport. It was amazing. I loved the freedom that came with that. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Now, despite having a British passport, I was still black. Um, and when you're a black family of five turning up at all white churches in places like Hertfordshire or Kent, where we lived, or Hampshire, people notice. I recall my parents being asked once by a woman on the welcome team why they had chosen that particular church to attend instead of the black church down the road. I'm sure she thought that her question was harmless, but I've never, ever forgotten it. It suggested that not only did she see our race first rather than see us as members of God's family, her family, but that the norm she had become accustomed to was that white people were here and black people were over there. Now, in my career working with Christian charities, I've been surprised at the number of times people have asked me things like, Jenny, what do, what do Pentecostal black majority churches think about X? I don't really know. The assumption being that since I am black, I go to a black church. 
We've often heard it said that the church remains one of the most racially segregated spaces in society. I was recently asked in an interview with American evangelical magazine Christianity Today about black majority churches in the UK. I made a remark about my belief that ultimately there shouldn't be a black majority church or a Chinese church here or an Asian church here, but that ultimately we would want all of us to be together in churches that are multiracial. And the interviewer disagreed saying it would surely be unfair for people of other cultures to have to lose their identity and conform. His words betrayed this belief that clearly the majority race is normative and that all other races are not. Their cultures and traditions and distinct ways of being would naturally be subsumed by whiteness. And this is white supremacy in action. White supremacy doesn't necessarily come in the Klansman's white cape, but the subtle words that seem to betray the idea that white is right. White supremacy can come not in literal chains and shackles, but the narrow definition of what and who is beautiful. White supremacy can come in the form of monochrome leadership, theology and practice, a cookie cutter of whiteness. My experience as a black person in white majority churches is that white is right and everything else is colour. I believe the beauty of the Christian story is in Christ drawing together all people from all places, breaking down the dividing wall of hostility. At times when I've thought about race issues within the church, I've been met with a retort that says that all are equal under God and therefore we shouldn't play into identity politics. In other words, I've been told not to play the race card. The majority white church asks us not to play the, that card, while simultaneously doing a very good job at highlighting our difference in ways that make us uncomfortable. I think back to the International Sundays where we were encouraged to bring our native food and dress in our traditional outfits and celebrate our culture. And for me, as a, as a nearly second-generation immigrant, these days would provide a certain level of anxiety for me as a young person, because I was already confused enough about my own identity. Was I British or was I Nigerian? Should my parents bring jollof rice or um, coronation chicken and quiche? I realise that what I'm saying is contradictory and can be confusing for well-meaning white people. And I've said my culture should be celebrated, but that you shouldn't point out that I'm different. I want you to recognise where I'm from, but I've spent far too many hours tying myself in, knot, myself in knots trying to appear wholly British without any hint of the Nigerian heritage that I used to be ashamed of. Like much of the rest of my life, I attempted to conform to whiteness in church without question. Now, confession, I was a very, very strange child. And I used to sit at home singing through songs and hymns of fellowship books and listening to Graham's Kendrick CDs on repeat and pretending I was Darlene Chech from Hillsong by singing aloud to uh, Hillsong backing tracks. Um, and I tell you this because I want to give you an insight into the constant battle that goes on inside my mind. Questions, confusion and internal angst about home and belonging and identity. A theologian called Ekemeni Uwan wrote recently, this is the psyche of the colonised mind, always at war with itself. Now, in recent years, I've been more at ease with my blackness. 
were celebrating it and not trying to hide it in order to conform to the majority. In recognising that I feel a powerful connection with my own culture and my own identity. My discomfort in white, white majority spaces comes when the choice is taken away from me. When you decide whether my culture should be dialed up or dialed down. And it's about, again, who holds the power. Since I've been speaking about these issues, I've heard more and more stories of young black women um, leaving churches. Those who grew up in churches that had mostly white people have been leaving through the back door because they no longer feel that they are safe in these spaces. My disappointment lies when I reflect on my 35 years in white majority churches and realise that these spaces have been those in which, in general, the Imago Day in me and people who look like me has been overlooked. I wonder whether I've ever heard a sermon quoting a black theologian, Martin Luther King aside. Um, I, I've been speaking to Nathan a bit about um, Oasis' efforts in this area. I also wonder whether the songs and choruses that celebrate uh, different rhythms and styles from different cultures are ever considered as legitimate ways to worship God. For me, in recent years, there's come a beauty in recognising the power of the Negro spiritual, of gospel, of the numinous feeling that comes with singing a chorus in my ancestral, ancestral tongue. I think we need to address the racial power imbalances in the church because it's in the celebration of diversity and difference, in seeing and hearing things in new ways, that we can be awakened again to the beauty of the Creator God. I want to leave you with five ways to dismantle white supremacy in your churches and in your communities. So the first one being to educate yourself. Knowledge is power. Read books that are outside um, the usual reading lists. Seek out um, black theologians, black sociologists, black Christians to, to read about. Number two, listen. Sometimes I find when I'm talking about my experiences of racism within the church, um, the response from you know, people, white people that I love, um, is to get defensive um, because there's this feeling that you know we're the good guys and I'm not racist but I think that the, the main thing that we need to do is to just listen to hear the experiences and not bring ourselves into the story and what comes with that is number three which is I think that we need to get comfortable with discomfort I'm sure that some of the stuff that I've said uh, today has made you feel uncomfortable but I think that we need to rest in that and know that that is what can prepare us forward to make change. Number four, recognise that this is not about you necessarily. If we're going to dismantle centuries of white supremacy, then we can't get offended. I was really fascinated slash depressed about the responses to Stormzy, um, the UK rapper recently, and his assertion that the ra racism exists in the UK. The amount of energy that was spent in refuting this, in calling him ungrateful for calling it out, in trying to show how he was wrong, it was astonishing. We should all be far more angry that the racism exists in the UK 
than whether we are individually perceived as racist. And finally, I think we need to rethink the hero. It is possible to change the narrative. If white supremacy is something you recognise in your church, then take active steps to dismantle it. It is possible. What I want to leave you with right at the end is hope. As an immigrant growing up in the West, I never thought I'd see the day when a black superhero film would be made. But Black Panther shows that we can rethink the hero. We can place others centre stage. So I'll leave you with a quote from Black Panther from the hero T'Challa who says, Now more than ever, the illusions of division threaten our very existence. We all know the truth. More connects us than separates us. But in times of crisis, the wise build bridges while the foolish build barriers. We must find a way to look after one another as if we were one single tribe.